Thomas Rayner, in 2003, was very reluctantly, um, by the church that is, brought into a dying church as a consultant. And he was brought in specifically to give a prognosis, to give a diagnosis, to find out why this church was steadily in decline towards death. In 1975, this particular church peaked at a membership of 750 members. By 2003, this same church had dwindled to 83 on a Sunday morning. And Tom remembers seeing this 80, small group of 83 just dwarfed by this large sanctuary that used to hold and was designed to hold more than 750 members. In fact, the members, they didn't want Tom coming. Um, And the only reason that it even happened was because one of the members, out of his own pocket, decided to foot the bill. He saw the importance in this. He recognized there was an issue, and he was determined to get him there. So very begrudgingly, after he offered to foot the bill for Tom to get there and see the church, the church agreed to retain him, and they did. Um, Tom spent three weeks working with the church, looking, watching, seeing what was going on. And he stated the problems were obvious. The solutions were difficult. On his last day there, this gentleman who put the entire bill for him to be there was walking him to his rental car and said, what do you think, Tom? And he saw some uncertainty in Tom's face. So he clarified his question and said, how long can our church survive? And at that point, Tom said, I believe this church will close its doors in five years. He later writes that he was wrong. This church actually lasted 10 years from the time that Tom had given his terminal diagnosis. He later writes some findings, and here's what he found. One, the church refused to look like the community. The socioeconomics and the demographics of the local community surrounding the church since 1975 had changed dramatically. And there was a growing, just absolutely obvious disparity between what the community looked like outside of the church and what it looked like within the church. The church had no community-focused ministries which shouldn't be a shock if we find out that the church did not look like the community outside of it. It wasn't to say that ministry wasn't taking place at this church. I believe ministry was taking place full and well within the four walls of the church. But the church was not taking its ministry on the road, per se. It wasn't taking that ministry out into the community. And as that withdrawal from the community intensified, What intensified inside the church was a strong focus on memorials, a growing focus on the way the church used to be, a a constant longing and, and seeking after to maintain what they had in 1975. There were no evangelistic, no evangelistic emphasis whatsoever. The members had more and more arguments about what it is they thought they wanted, what they thought they needed, 
more and more differences and arguments um, over what we would call petty things, things like the color of the carpet, not, not kingdom-driven conversations. The church rarely prayed together. And the most shocking, the church had no clarity as to why it existed. It did not know its mission. It did not know why it was there. What was its purpose for existing? What was it called to do? It had no clarity on this. But unfortunately, these are not uncommon issues. This is not something that's relatively isolated. Currently, 75% of evangelical churches in the U.S. are already plateaued or dying. 75% of evangelical churches. In the SBC alone, and this statistics comes from the SBC itself last year, there has been a 26.5% decline in baptisms since 2007. That is a ratio of one baptism for every 59 members, for every 59 SBC members. It takes currently 60 members of an SBC church for every baptism. Despite the fact that the SBC has started 2,900 churches over the last decade. And this is phenomenal. This is an absolutely good thing. And the North American Mission Board has been extremely focused. And you've probably heard of Send Cities. Where they are planting in the major metropolitan areas. Where the large majority of our United States populations are coming together in community. We are planting churches, 2,900 over the last 10 years, but our baptisms continue to decline at the rate of 26.5%. Why? Why is this? Why are so many churches plateaued or dying? Thomas Rainer, I believe, does a great job in his article here of diagnosing some of the important practical issues that were present in this particular church, and I have no doubt are present in these 75% that are either plateaued or dying, a widespread issue. But however accurate Tom's analysis, I believe that we have one who gives a better analysis. I believe that we have access to one who gives us a perfect diagnosis as to what the heart of the issue is, as to why these things take place. And that comes from none other than Jesus Christ through his word. And in our passage this morning, we find such a diagnosis. A diagnosis, not just any diagnosis, a perfect diagnosis of a church that was otherwise remarkable. And the church that we're going to look at today is the church of Ephesus the first of seven letters to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. Not just any letters, the seven prophetic letters, and the first of which, the church at Ephesus. And this was an absolutely remarkable church, wasn't it? There's a reason we know a lot about this church. Paul wrote a letter to this church, right? 
Ephesus was planted and started by none other than Paul himself, who wrote half of the New Testament. This church had an incredible legacy, an incredible heritage, incredible training. The church that Paul started, that Paul preached to on a regular basis. The church that Paul discipled. The church that Paul himself helped raise up the next generation of leaders. The church that he taught to evangelize and brought them out into the community. We saw the effects of this in Acts 19, didn't we? Absolutely amazing story. The word of God was being spread to the extent that it was having effects on the local economy. That those who were making little idols for Artemis, the goddess that was located there in Ephesus, they were losing sales. And it, and it sparked a riot. Because the word of God was affecting to the extent it was changing the local economy. It's absolutely amazing. This was a remarkable church. But as remarkable as this church was, it was also found wanting in one of the most important areas. And the diagnosis, if left untreated, was terminal. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. Before directly engaging the church at Ephesus and, and the rest of these, these seven churches with a prophetic word, the authority of Christ over his creation is first firmly established. And in a just incredible vision and revelation of himself to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos where this book was written, uh, we find the beginnings of that in chapter 1, which lays the groundwork for where we are. Let's look in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Be helpful to set the stage for where we are heading. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And if you look down with me, beginning in verse 12, we're going to skip down to 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, 
refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The reaction that we will all have when we stand before God. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This message is from Christ himself, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The spotless lamb who ushered in our salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection. And as the first chapter tells us, Even the one who holds the keys to death and to Hades itself. So it is Christ who holds the seven stars. It is Christ who walks among the seven lampstands, which we know now as the seven churches. I don't know about you that it brings me a lot of hope, but it also makes me fearful, doesn't it? Christ walks amongst his churches. Christ has just told us he walked among the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. And he walks amongst his church at First Baptist Church of Fisherville. The better prophet, the better priest, the better king, the omniscient, omnipresent, transcendent, the holy righteous judge, the one who knows the heart of every man. The one who knows the thoughts of every man perfectly. Who perfectly knows the state of his church. And who examines without error. Walks amongst us. And walked amongst the church at Ephesus. So Christ begins these individual letters to these churches by reminding them that he is amongst them. And that he has the authority to give to them. This prophetic message that comes with a warning. A warning of judgment if its words are not heeded, but also hope. And as we walk into the beginnings of this this first letter, this letter to Ephesus, we're going to see at the very beginning in the first three verses, and then later in in verse 6, which we'll get to, we see where Christ commends rightfully commends this church at Ephesus, this remarkable church at Ephesus. But he doesn't stop there. He continues on from a a letter of commendation to a letter of condemnation that we're going to see beginning in verse 4. So look with me in verse 2 of chapter 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Christ knows these works because he sees them, because he walks amongst his churches. He sees all and he knows all. And the church at Ephesus is commended for their their works, for their toil, 
for their perseverance. There is an idea here of working to the point of exhaustion. I think we can all agree that sometimes ministry can be pretty demanding, can't it? And I can see this church at Ephesus toiling, working, doing the good works in Christ that they were created and called to do, feverishly, without end, with perseverance, despite the cultural pressures that were coming onto this church, pressures that we have not seen, and I pray we don't see here in the United States. They worked, they labored, they kept the ministry of the church going. The functions of this church were moving forward because the church at Ephesus was working tirelessly, working feverishly to ensure that everything was going off as it should. Like I said, we can all agree that the the work of the church is difficult and that the work of the church these good deeds, these, these toil, the endless work, it seems like at times, requires a great sacrifice, doesn't it? It requires a sacrifice of time. Because with the energies that I'm, I'm focusing in here, I'm not allowed to focus somewhere else. Right? And it's very real. So it's a sacrifice of time. It's a sacrifice of energy. It's a sacrifice of resources. And this church at Ephesus, this remarkable church, is commended for the sacrifices that they are making, the hard work that they are putting in. And it reminds me very much of Fisherville. I know many of you who labor to the point of exhaustion. And I can't thank you enough for your hard work for your toil for the church, for the bride, for the body of Christ. And we don't always see the fruit of that labor, do we? We don't always see the fruit of it. It makes me think of our children's ministry, such a critical, important piece of our ministry at First Baptist Church of Fisherville. The biblical education and guidance of our next generation of leaders in our churches. Right? But it's hard, to rem- it's hard to recognize that and remember it when they're toddlers and running around, right? It's pretty exhausting, week in and week out. But we have those who labor week in and week out. We have men. You, don't even, you can't even begin to know some of the things that some of these men do day in and day out in this church with their hands, using the giftings that God has given them to keep this building up, moving the playgrounds, uh, the, all the beautiful work. That was done in this gym when we moved in. I can't thank you enough for your hard work, your toil, and your perseverance. So Christ commends them for their deeds, their toil, their patience, but he doesn't stop there. He also commends them for their commitment to the truth. Look with me in the second part of verse 2. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. They are committed to the truth of God's word. 
They are committed to the gospel. This is a church that is serious about their Bibles. This is a church that is serious about doctrine. This is a church that is serious about teaching the tenets of the faith to the body. How do we know this? You cannot protect the church from false teachers. You cannot protect yourself from false teachers if you don't know what the truth is. And a remarkable history and legacy of teaching at the church of Ephesus. Paul and John and others committed themselves to ensuring that this church knew their Bibles. Obviously not the full canon that we have now. But they knew it. They knew who Christ was. They had a passion and a zeal and a love for the things of God. The knowledge of God. They took it seriously. Paul wrote in, the, in Ephesians chapter 5 warning them. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. There is a very real threat of false teachers, isn't there? It didn't just stop in first century AD. That threat continues, and that threat will continue until Christ returns. And so Paul warns them. He doesn't just warn them, he teaches them, he trains them how to discern what is right, how to discern what is good. How in light of scripture to vet the character of a man before you bring him in into leadership. These were things that this church took seriously. They heeded the words of Paul. And how important is that today? When doctrine, the knowledge of Bible, right teaching, gospel-centered expository preaching, all these things are becoming more and more rare. And it's heartbreaking. But that was not a problem for the church. Excuse me, at Ephesus. They heeded what Paul said in Ephesians 4. That we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. And carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning. By craftiness and deceitful schemes. They took that to heart. They heeded that. And we saw this play out. With the Nicolaitans. And Christ commends them for their dealings with the Nicolaitans. Look in verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Which I also hate. We don't know an extensive amount about the Nicolaitans. But we do know, what we do know is this. Is that they taught and directed their followers. To presume upon the grace of God. What does that mean? Right? They led their followers under the guise of Christianity and gospel to live a life of licentiousness and a life of sinfulness. And then to condone it as good, to condone it as right. Almost an antinomianism, the sense that because God has set us free, because we are alive in Christ... The Old Testament laws, God's, God's commandments to us to go out and live out that gospel life, no longer really apply to us. It's okay to go do what you want. 
Go eat, drink, and be merry at the end of the day. It's okay. Grace of God covers it, right? They recognize that as false teaching. They recognize it as deceitful cunning, and they barred it from entering the life of the, of the uh, church of the Ephesians. And so they're commended for that. And I'm thankful for you, Fisherville, because of your love for doctrine, your love for truth, for your commitment to the word of God, for your commitment to ensuring that the leaders that you put in place have been biblically vetted, that they are godly men of 2 Timothy chapter 3. You take it seriously. I know so many of you, strong gifted discernment, and you are always on the watch to make sure that something like the Nicolaitans and all of the other deceitful whims and blowing of the day of the culture does not find its way through the doors of the church. So I am grateful for you and your perseverance and works and defense of the faith. And we see that Christ commending the church at Ephesus in these first three verses of exactly that. Their perseverance, their toil to the point of exhaustion, and their commitment to truth. This looks like a solid church, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I would be excited to join that church. A church that is serious about the word of God. A church that is serious about the gospel. A church that is serious about doing the good works in Christ that we were created to do. That sounds like a church I want to be a part of. As good as it looks, however, we find in verse 4 that there's something lurking under the surface. Look with me in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. On Christmas Eve in Sydney, um, this was close to downtown. This was in a very, uh, I, I believe, an affluent area of Sydney, Australia. There's a tower called the Opal Tower. It is a four-month-old, 34-story condo building. Brand new. Top of the line. I mean, this is an absolutely gorgeous-looking building. The architecture is, is dazzling. And I'm sure the inside was built and created to match, I'm sure, with all the new bells and whistles that are on the outside of this building. Perfectly manicured lawn. You can tell that they are going to take care of this building and probably have the funds to take care of this building for decades to come. On the outside, this building is absolutely immaculate. But unfortunately, on Christmas Eve of this year, they had to evacuate the entire 34-story building. And to my knowledge, I haven't seen an update. I don't know if anybody's been let back into this building. You see, the residents on the 10th floor heard a a tremendous bang one day. And then shortly after, cracks started to form in the walls of the building from the 10th floor all the way up to the 13th floor. 
And those cracks became more widespread. They grew. They got deeper. And the walls started to shift enough that they were having trouble opening doors, which previously they did not have issues with. I'm not a structural engineer, but something tells me that that is a major red flag for any building, right? Sounds like a potential death nail for this building. But not unlike a lot of the plateaued and dying churches across this country, not unlike the church that Thomas Rayner went to consult with, things probably look great on the outside for a very long time. Right? They probably look pristine from the outside, some of them. They have ministries probably functioning. I don't think that these churches aren't doing anything. I think they're working. I think there are ministries that are taking place. From the outside in, they probably look completely normal. Not all of them. I'm sure a lot of them do. But what you don't realize is on the inside of these churches, there's cracks beginning to form. And those cracks may be growing, getting deeper, and becoming more widespread. And at some point, the cracks at the heart of the structure aren't going to be able to sustain itself. And that church, that building, may come crashing down, and that church eventually close its doors. As good as the church at Ephesus was, and it was a remarkable church, these are beautiful things that they're commended for. From the outside in, even though they were doing a lot of things right, their zeal for service, their zeal for the work of the church, their zeal for right knowledge of God, their zeal for the scriptures, all commendable things. And Christ did not fault them for those things. But yet, they abandoned their first love. And it's here at this point that we find the source of structural failure for many churches. And it's oftentimes a slow killer, isn't it? Sin does not typically surprise us. Sin typically sneaks up on us, doesn't it? It works its way in, sometimes when we least expect it, and before you know it, you can be overcome with it. Before anybody realizes what it's going on, before these churches oftentimes realize what is going on, they may be past the point of no return. Why does this happen? This passage got to the heart of the issue for us. You see, there can only be one focus of our affections. That one focus of our affections from which everything else falls into place. We were created to bring God glory. We were created to love. But we were created to love only one. Jesus Christ. Because he first loved us. And it is so easy to get distracted, isn't it? It is so easy for us to lose focus. It is so easy for our, our affections for Christ to begin to, to drift. To just kind of float away. It is so easy for us to, be, to, to move from the creator. The one who created us, everything in this world around us. 
to worshiping creation itself. To worshiping the things that surround us every day. Especially in our society, in our culture, where we are overly spoiled, aren't we? We, we are an extremely blessed culture financially. The wealth of which the world has probably never seen. And it's, it's in these settings when we have everything at our fingertips. Everything we want is right there. We have everything we need. We don't worry about food popping up on our tables tomorrow. We know where our next meal is going to come from. And we get lulled into a sense of complacency. And we forget our need for a Savior. We forget that it's not us at the end of the day that does these things. But we lie to ourselves. We fall into the trap. We get complacent and we lie to ourselves and we begin to believe the lie. Because we are loving something other than Christ. And as, as we begin to drift away from that love of Christ, we begin to love other things. We love comfort. We love stuff. We are a consumeristic society. We love stuff. And we get tangled, entangled into the web of busyness. Right? We get busy. Not only are we busy, we're overly entertained. And we have short attention spans. And as our love for these other things grow, our love for Christ begins to fade. And our love for the things that Christ loves begins to fade. We lose our desire to be with and to fellowship with the body. Our prayers lose their fervencies, don't they? Our prayers become dry. They become brittle, kind of like our daily Bible reading, right? They, they lose that sense of urgency out of a desperate need for a Savior. And then we get pulled back and forth. We get into a tug-of-war with our time because we will put all of our energies, all of our time, all of our focus, everything we have into whatever it is that we love. We will go after it fully. You can't serve two masters. The church at Ephesus couldn't serve two masters. I can't serve two masters. And when it starts to happen, we get into a tug of war. We know over here I should, I should probably be doing this. I should be engaged with the body and community life. I should be discipling a weaker brother and sister in Christ. I should be evangelizing a lost and dying world, but I just don't have time because I've got to take care of all this over here. And then our priorities start getting out of whack and things start to, to fall apart and those cracks get deeper and more widespread. And I think ultimately what the author is getting at here, we no longer evangelize our communities. We are no longer that lampstand in the midst of a dark and dying world. That light begins to fade. 
it begins to not shine as bright slowly until it eventually is completely snuffed out by the idols of our hearts and a misplaced love. And then, like the church that Thomas Rainer has consulted, we find ourselves with an unexpected terminal diagnosis. My prayer for Fisherville, as we look to the coming year, as we wrap up 2018, and this has absolutely blessed year for Fisherville, hasn't it? It really has. God has done some absolutely amazing things. And it is a blessing and a privilege to be able to look back on what God has done in our church this year. But as we look and as we consider what's coming next, right? This is always a time where we, we examine our lives. We examine our priorities for the upcoming year. What, what are our hopes? What's our dreams? What do we want to accomplish this year? That's right. That is good. But what I hope and what my prayer is, is that we would allow Scripture to examine our hearts. That we'd allow Scripture to examine our priorities. That we would allow the Word of God to have its say in what is coming forth for us in 2019. Christ is walking amongst the lampstands of First Baptist Church of Fisherville, Kentucky. And He is assessing the state of our hearts. Every individual here. And I believe that we are a church that works hard. I believe that we are a church that toils to the point of exhaustion. I believe we're a church that perseveres. I believe that we are a church that takes a stand for the word of God against a culture that wants to beat down our door. I believe that this is a church that is serious about the word of God. I believe we're a church that hates sin and wants to root it out. I praise God for that. But the question that this, pas- this passage demands the church at Ephesus to ask, it's the question that this passage demands that each and every single one of us in this room asks this morning. The question that we as a corporate body have to ask, that I have to ask, have we abandoned our first love? Have we abandoned our first love? Have we become torn in our affections? Have we begun to give our love and our affections to another? Has our private worship gone dry? Is it brittle? What does our prayer life look like? What does it indicate about the direction and the object of our affections? Have we lost our zeal for evangelism? Are we no longer loving the things that Christ loves? Do we still hate the things that God hates? Has our love for Christ overflowed 
into our relationships? Has it overflowed into our marriages? Do we reflect the love of Christ that is overflowing from us and point our spouse back to Christ? Do we do that? Has our love for Christ overflowed as a gospel light to a dying community? At our workplaces? In our neighborhoods? At the gas station? At the grocery store? Wherever God has us? Do we strategize how to better be stewards of the things that God has given us for kingdom purposes? Do we strategize, how can I use my car even to be a witness to a dying world? How do I use my home as a source of spreading the kingdom of God? How do I use my career? How do I use where God has put me to be a gospel light? Have we abandoned the love that we had at first? The church at Ephesus did abandon its first love. But Christ didn't just drop a nuclear bomb on this church and leave, did he? No. He did diagnose perfectly the issue of the heart. But he also, in his grace and his mercy, he gave them the cure. Look with me in verse Revelation 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore... From where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So what does he call them to do? The church at Ephesus is called to remember from where they came. Remember that every single one of them in that church was at one time, just like us at Fisherville, was at one time destined for destruction. They were called to remember that they were at one time lost in their sins. They were not looking for God. We were not looking for God, were we? We were happy and content establishing our own little kingdom. We didn't care about God. We didn't want to know him. We didn't want to look for him. He found us. Everyone, every human being, every person in this room chose a life of rebellion against their creator. The God who created them and who right now currently sustains every breath that we, were give, or that we are giving and taking by the power of his word. It's cosmic treason. And there is a cost to that treason. An eternity in hell where God's wrath is poured out without end. You cannot and could not willpower yourself out of this mess. You cannot fulfill enough New Year's resolutions to make this right. We are utterly powerless and hopeless to fix the situation. What you need, what I need, what we all need is a change 
of our affections, which is only possible through one, the Son, coming into his creation, living the life that we could not live in perfect obedience to God. When we recognize through the good news of the gospel that we have sinned against him and that we are created to glorify him, to love him, when we recognize and our eyes are open to the truth that instead we set up our own little many kingdoms, our own little fiefdoms, when we recognize that we have done that, truly, we will be humbled. We will fall on our face before God saying, tell me what to do. We're looking to Christ because he is the one who came, he died, buried, and rose again for those who would repent and believe. That is the good news of the gospel, and this is what the church of Ephesus is called to remember. If you have lost, abandoned your first love, if we have abandoned our first love, this is what we are called to. To remember. Remember where we have fallen from. The gospel. We love Christ because he first loved us through this atoning sacrifice. That should warm your heart. And stir your affections for Christ. The only true object of our affections. The love that the Ephesians were trading for everything else. And a love that we oftentimes will trade for anything else or anyone else. The insanity of a misplaced love. When we are living in the truth of the gospel, when we are living in the love for Christ, there is a zeal that we are called to remember. A love for the things that God loves. We are completely and wholly absorbed with him, consumed with him. There's a fervency, a desperation in our prayer lives, in our private worship. In our understanding that there are people dying and going to hell every day who have not heard the gospel. Our fervor for evangelism is directly tied to our fervor for Christ. Our willingness to sacrifice our time, our restful days off, our comfort, our finances is directly tied to our love of Christ. If a church loves Christ, it loves the things that Christ loves. And he didn't hide that from us. He told us in Matthew, therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey the things that I command you. That is the mission of every believer at Ephesus. That is the mission of every believer here at First Baptist Church of Fisherville. It is the mission of the church. That is why we are here. This is what God has called us to do. But when a church becomes distracted by idolatry, when an individual becomes distracted by idolatry, 
we have a catastrophic failure of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And the fix to this structural issue is not another New Year's resolution. Christ does not just call us to read my Bible more this year. Christ does not just call us to witness to more people this year. He does not call us to just be more hospitable this year. He does not just call us to love our spouse more this year. Well, all these things are good. There's nothing wrong with these things. These things should be happening. But first and foremost, he calls us to love him wholly, completely. And all of our priorities will fall into place. Because we will have a desire to do those things. Why? Because that's what Christ loves and we love Christ. Christ calls them to remember. Secondly, he calls them to repent. The heart of the issue is the heart and the heart has loved another. We have violated the first commandment if we have abandoned our first love. And that requires us to fall on our face before the holy God and repent. And he calls us to do, to do the works you did at first. When a heart is rekindled for the love of Christ through the power of the gospel, it is going to want to do those things that it did at first. A heart changed by the gospel is a heart that has beheld the glory of Christ. And with that comes a zealousness for him, for his word, for our marriages, for our relationships, to point others back to Christ. But look with me in 2.5 as he wraps this up. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And then going down to verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why did he say that? If he who has an ear, let him hear. Why does he say that? The Word of God is going to get a reaction out of everybody who hears it. You are going to respond to the word of God one way or another. When we are confronted with sin in the beauty of Christ, we're going to do one of two things. We are either going to fall on our face in adoration, fall on our face in repentance, and go do those things that we should do, or we're going to withdraw behind the walls of our little kingdom and reject the message. You cannot be neutral with the word of God. There is no neutrality with the gospel. If we fail to remember, repent, and do, the lampstand will be removed from First Baptist Church of Fisherville. 
He's, he said, one commentator put it this way, so this is nothing less than a promise to unchurch the church. That is terrifying. God is jealous for his glory. And a church that refuses to be a light to the outside world refuses to be a church. If we fail to repent of violating the first commandment, a life that continues a life of disobedience and a life of unrepentance, we prove ourselves to be an unbeliever. The life of a believer is a life of repentance. When a believer is confronted with the word of God, they're not perfect. Believers are not perfect. We sin, don't we? But the difference, a believer, when they're confronted with the word of God, will repent and will look back to the gospel because Christ died for us. He took the penalty for that sin. Our affections for Christ are stirred. And we desire to live that life that we were called to live. And there's hope at the very end of seven. To the one who conquers, to the one who repents, to the one who loves Christ, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in paradise. Amen? So First Baptist Church of Fisherville, as we close, have you, have we, abandoned our first love. Let's close in prayer.